0: 15, starting this great passage this morning. There'll be, uh, it'll be on this screen as well. There are outlines in your bulletin you can follow along with. There are printed messages at both exits. Feel free to grab one either now or later. And uh, the messages are online as well. Very familiar passage to most believers, but one that we can never really plumb the depths of, Jesus speaking to the eleven disciples in the upper room just before he goes out to be betrayed, tells them, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. A while back, someone emailed me a link to a funny uh, video on YouTube where. It was in German, but you didn't have to know German to understand it. The gist of it was that a young woman had given her father a new iPad for his birthday, and she asked him how he liked it, and he said, good. And then in the next scene, she's absolutely horrified to see him chopping his vegetables on it as a cutting board, and he brings it over and scrapes his vegetables into the pot and then... Rinses it off under the faucet and sticks it in the dishwasher. And then a funny caption at the end informs us that no real iPads were harmed in the filming of this episode. Well, it's funny on a video, but it's not so funny in real life when something costly is not being used according to its intended purpose. It's even worse when something costly is being used contrary to its intended purpose. Maybe some of you, like us, have visited the little town of Buena Vista, Colorado. They pronounce it some horrible Texas pronunciation up there—Buini, I don't know, Buini, Buini. That's how they say it. Anyway, it's it's Buena Vista. But there's an old church, and it's now being used as a museum and visitor center. And it's sad because you think, you know, at one time the praises of God went forth from this place and the word of God was preached and now it's just totally being used for a secular purpose. Um, and so when something isn't used according to its purpose, it's sad. But really the saddest of all is when somebody who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus is not fulfilling the purpose for which he redeemed them. People, Christian people, sadly, some drift through life just like unredeemed people do. It seems like their goal in life is collect as much stuff as they can before they die. And other than going to church on Sunday, there's not a whole lot of discernible difference between them and the neighbor next door. And they have lost sight of the purpose for which God saved them. Uh, In our text, Jesus gives the disciples this extended allegory and it reveals God's purpose in saving them. And that is, he wants them to bear much fruit. Uh, Jesus pictures himself here as the true vine. His father is the vine dresser. The disciples are the branches and as you know, when a man plants a vineyard, he plants it for a different reason than, say, if we plant a flower garden. You plant a flower garden so you can enjoy some pretty flowers in the summer, maybe. But when you plant a vineyard, your object is you want grapes. You want that crop. And if you plant it and all it does is bear some pretty flowers and some nice leaves, you're going, you know what? I failed in my purpose here. My purpose was that we could enjoy some good grapes off of this grapevine. And Jesus here is pointing out in John 15, 1 through 6, that his true followers abide in him as branches in the true vine, and so they bear much fruit. Now, taking the whole chapter of John 15, it reflects the three priorities that we emphasize here that are priorities for our church and They are individually priorities for every believer. Our number one priority is God word, and so the first 11 verses of John 15 focus on our relationship to Jesus Christ. Our second priority is that we would love one another, uh, the second great commandment, and verses 12 through 17 focus on that. And then our third priority is that we would proclaim the good news of Christ to uh, those who do not know the Savior, and that's the focus of verses 18 to 27. So we're going to look through the forest part of it, but I wanted you to see the, the overview of where we're going with it. Um, in our text, though, the point is that Jesus as the vine and we as the branches, the point is that we would abide in him, and so our lives would bear much fruit for him. And so we need to understand the different parts of this analogy so that we can fulfill our God-given purpose. The first part of the analogy is that Jesus says he is the true vine, and his Father is the vine dresser in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Now this is the seventh and final I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, You can track them through. I put the verses in the notes there. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He says, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now here, I am the true vine. But you have to ask, well, why would Jesus come up with an analogy of being the true vine? I I mean, where is this coming from? And how would the disciples have figured that out. I mean, what would they have thought when, they, when Jesus said, I am the true vine? Would they have thought, that's a weird analogy, or would they have gotten it? I think they got it because in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as God's vine that he planted. In fact, it became a national symbol. It was on many of their coins and over the entrance to the temple there was a golden vine a sculpture of a golden vine up there representing israel uh, in isaiah chapter 1 through uh, 5 verses 1 through 7 for example the prophet says that god planted a vine and he expected to find good grapes at the harvest time but instead it only produced worthless grapes and as a result god threatens to destroy That vine because it did not fulfill his intended purpose. You have a similar analogy in Psalm 80 where God removed a vine from Egypt. He planted that vine for a while. It seemed to do okay and bear some fruit, but now the vine was being ravaged. The the hedges that um, protected it were broken down The wild beasts were ravaging the vineyard, and the psalmist calls out for God again to come and tend for his vineyard so that it will be fruitful. And you also have similar analogies in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea, where the prophet compares Israel to a vine. In each case, they were God's vine. They were supposed to produce fruit, but in every case, they failed in their purpose. They did not produce the crop God wanted. But now, Jesus claims to be the true vine. And in John's gospel, we have seen repeatedly how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Remember in John 2, where when Jesus cleansed the temple, he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. And they thought he was talking about the literal temple, but John, in retrospect, writes and says, no, no, no. He was talking about his body. Because Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the temple was. He is the dwelling place of God on earth and of God with his people. Then in John chapter 4, we saw that Jesus can give the living water that Jacob's well could never give. Uh, Jacob's well produced water, but Jesus gave water that would cause that person who drank of it never to thirst. Then in John 6, we saw that Jesus gives true bread. He's the new Moses. He fulfilled the picture that Moses uh, gave there leading the people in the wilderness where God, through Moses, brought manna and fed them. And Jesus said, I am the true bread that comes down out of heaven to give life to whoever eats of me. Uh, Then in John 7, And John 8, we saw that Jesus fulfills what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. uh, That he is the one who, if you drink of him, he will give living water. And that pictured them pouring out water there at the altar in the temple. And in John 8 and 9, Jesus fulfills what John 1, 9 said. And that is that Jesus is the true light who gives light to the world And that was also a part of the Feast of the Tabernacles where there were giant candelabras lighting up the temple there. And so in every case, Jesus is the fulfillment that the Old Testament had pictured but not satisfied thoroughly. Jesus fulfilled it. And so now Israel was the vine, but that vine failed. Jesus is the true vine. He is all that God intended for his people to be. He is the fruitful vine who brought forth fruit unto God. And so unlike faithful Israel, faithless Israel, uh, Jesus is the fulfillment, the ideal realization of all that God wanted his people to be. And then Jesus adds in verse 1 there, My father is the vine dresser, and that means he owns the vineyard. He's the one who takes care of it. Uh, He's the one who cuts off the dead branches that don't bear fruit. He's the one that prunes the fruit-bearing branches so that they will bear more fruit. But he is in control of the whole process. And as the owner of the vineyard, the father expects fruit from his vine. And so he's going to do what's necessary for it to bear fruit. That's the first part of the analogy. Then... Christ makes it clear that his purpose for all the branches in him is that we bear much fruit, and bearing fruit is obviously the main theme of this analogy. We see it negatively and positively in verse 2, where Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And then Jesus mentions bearing fruit again two times in verse 4, once again in verse 5, again in verse 8, and then two times more down in verse 16. So clearly bearing fruit is the point of the vine, and he wants the vine to um, fulfill its purpose. So we need to understand then, to understand the allegory, what does Jesus mean by fruit? Well, I believe that to bear fruit is to see God produce Christ's likeness in you. Um, the word is used widely in the New Testament, fruit. But in this context, it especially refers to whatever the life of the vine, Christ, produces in the branch. So it is Christ-likeness coming through the branch. And that includes obedience to Christ's commandments, which we'll see as a major theme in John 15. Especially the command to love one another. That's down in verse 12. Uh, it extends in the New Testament to all godly behavior is referred to as fruit. Any conduct like repentance or conduct that is pleasing to God is referred to as fruit. Um, Jesus' peace and joy that he gives, we've seen those in recent weeks in our study, those are fruit. And since love, peace, and joy are the first three fruits of the Spirit, it follows that all of the other fruits of the Spirit, which include patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of those are referred to as fruit in the New Testament. One other use of the word in John's gospel is seeing people come to faith in Christ. We saw that back in chapter 4, where the Samaritans responded to Jesus' witness, and he said that he was already bearing fruit uh, for eternal life. And fruit also refers to helping people grow in Christ as you come alongside them and disciple them and so on. And so, to sum it all up, you could say that fruit in the New Testament ref- refers to Christ-like character, Christ-like conduct, and Christ-like converts. Now, obviously, it takes time for fruit to grow, and so if you see that list and you go, oh boy, you know, I'm not there yet. Well, it takes time, but the question is, are you in process? Are you growing in these areas? Um, You should be growing a habit of obedience to Jesus Christ. That should be part of God's fruit in your life. Uh, You should see the fruit of the Spirit that are up on the screen there. Uh, You should see those increasing in your life. And, by the way, your family should see them increasing in your life. They're the good mirror, aren't they, of you know, am I growing in these things or not? We can fool ourselves, but usually our family can tell. Uh, you should be hungering and thirsting after righteousness more and more and hating your sin more. You should be looking and praying for opportunities to tell other people the greatest news in the world, that Christ died for sinners and that they can receive eternal life as a free gift by believing in Jesus Christ. Um, and so, if if you're not seeing those qualities growing in your life, you need to stop and do a check. Say, what what's wrong? You know, somehow growth is being inhibited. And as, as you know, when you have children, if they aren't growing normally, you go, something's wrong here. You know, we need to get the child checked. And we all have those little growth charts on our door when our kids are little. And we mark them. And the next time, hey, look, you know, you grew two inches. And... I know it's harder as we get older to see that growth, but there ought to be progress in our Christian life. Now, also, let me point out, our fruit is going to vary both in the amount of fruit we bear and in the kind we bear because God has sovereignly given us all different spiritual gifts, and that's fine. I mean, that's his purpose, is to gift us all as different members of the body. But you'll remember the parable of the sower where In my understanding of that parable, the only soil that represents born again people is that that bore fruit. But it didn't all bear the same amount, did it? Some was a hundredfold, some was 60, some was 30. And the 30 didn't get chewed out because they only bore 30. Uh, God purposed that they would bear 30, and they did it. And so we all are going to vary in the amount, and it's You kind of get on thin ice sometimes if you compare yourself, you know. Well, preachers do this all the time. Boy, I'm not having the impact that John MacArthur does or, you know, that Billy Graham did or whatever. Well, God gives different amounts to different people. And your fruit will vary in kind. Spiritual gifts differ. Peter divides them up into serving gifts and speaking gifts. And obviously, those are going to look different in the way they come out, the way they're manifested. But determining what your spiritual gift is helps you to know where you should focus your efforts. Because if you're gifted in one way and serving in another, it's going to jar you. You're not going to get the benefit out of your ministry that God intends for you to have. But the point is, every Christian is given a gift. Every Christian is to use that gift in some way to serve the Lord. And so he wants you to figure that out. You know, what, how has God wired me? And I would say it depends on what do you like doing? God isn't going to make you do something you hate. What do you enjoy doing? And what do you see fruit when you do it? People come up and say, wow, thanks. That really ministered to me. And go for it. Do it. So the overall point is, is clear and it's important. And that is God saved you and me that we would bear fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, you better do a check and say, what's going on here? Why am I not bearing fruit? It'd be like if you have a car and it doesn't drive. Well, that's the purpose of a car. And it might look great sitting in your driveway, but if it doesn't go down the road, uh, you need to get something checked. Something's wrong with that car, and it needs to get fixed. So uh, do, a course, correction. And here's why you need to correct it And this It's into some scary stuff, but I didn't write the book. I'm just teaching it, okay? Uh, And that is, Jesus says, the branches that do not bear fruit get cut off and thrown into the fire. And there are two verses here that teach this. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then down in verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned now needless to say there's debate over what these verses mean so we need to plumb a little deeper here to see what they mean some understand verse 2 to teach that Christians can lose their salvation I hope that most of you have been sitting under my ministry long enough that I don't have to deal with that very long here. Uh, there are so many verses contrary to that in the New Testament. And it is important when you interpret the Bible to interpret the, the cloudy or the difficult verses in light of the clear. And there are just repeated verses that show, I mean, eternal life by its very word. How long does it last? eternally. <laughs> it's called eternal life and it's not called temporary life. It's it's called eternal life. And so that itself shows it's eternal. Back in John 6, we saw Jesus saying there that of all that the Father has given me, I'm going to lose none. I won't lose a single one that the Father gave me. That's an assurance that eternal life is eternal. And then Jesus stated in John 10, 28 and 29, speaking of his sheep, he said, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then there are other verses, uh, whole passages like Romans 8, And other verses throughout the New Testament that say the same thing. Now I know there's the scary warning passages. I had an email yesterday from a man up in Canada who had read some of my sermons online. And he was afraid he had committed the unpardonable sin and they couldn't be forgiven. And took about eight emails back and forth before I was able to show him, you know, if you've trusted Christ and repented of your sin, then... God promises he's not going to let you go. Um, So the verse is not teaching you can lose your salvation here. Now others interpret verse 2 by putting the emphasis on that phrase, in me, uh, in me. And they understand Jesus here to be referring to true believers that are really in Christ. And then they go one of two directions with the interpretation. Some of them will say that this is referring to believers who commit the sin unto death. And there are several verses that show that true believers can sin and God pulls them out of the game, so to speak. He, he yanks them and puts in a relief pitcher and says, you're out of this one, and they die and go to heaven. Uh, the problem with that interpretation is, Uh, Jesus here says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And that's just not true in experience. Uh, If that were true, this place would be empty, and I wouldn't even be up here preaching. You know, we all have fallen short. We've all failed God, and he doesn't, thankfully, yank us all on that basis. Some he does, and we don't always know why. Uh, The other way people go with it, who believe it, refers to Christians— is that the verb that is in my version translated and in most versions translated takes away can mean lift up in some context. And so they say it's a picture of the vine dresser coming by and here's a branch drooping in the mud and he puts a little prop under it to get it up out of the mud and into the daylight so that it will bear fruit. Um, And uh, I used to hold to that view... James Boyce argues for it in his uh, commentary, as does A.W. Pink. But now, in light of verse 6 and the vast majority of other commentators, I believe that uh, that's not what Jesus meant. Although, if you hold to that view, you have some good company. Um, I think that in the allegory, there are two types of branches. And Jesus often paints black and white pictures in his parables and in his statements. Here you have those that don't bear fruit, and you have those that bear fruit. And if you're in the first category, Jesus wants you to jump into the second category. Uh, There's no kind of in-between category here. And those that do not bear fruit are not fulfilling their purpose, and they're dead wood. And so they get cut off and thrown in the fire, and I think they represent those who profess to believe in Christ but there's no evidence of it in their lives. You just, you look and you look and you go, man, he sure doesn't look like a Christian, you know? I mean, if it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck and flies like a duck, it's a duck. And Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruit. Well, there's no fruit. And I think in the context, it refers to Judas Iscariot. He professed to follow Christ. He went out preaching in the name of Christ, but in the end run, His God was greed. And we see that when he goes off and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, in support of that interpretation is verse 3. Jesus tells the 11, You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. And if you've been here for a few weeks, you're going, ah, that rings a bell. Back in chapter 13 and verse 10, at the foot washing... Jesus told Peter, when Peter didn't want to have his feet washed, he said, you're all clean, but not all of you. I mean, you're clean, but not all of you. And then John goes on and says, he was referring to Judas, the son of Iscariot, who was going to betray him. Judas was unclean. Judas was the unfruitful branch who was taken away, whose final end was to be cast into the fire of hell. But then you still ask, well then, what about that phrase, in me? Doesn't that refer to a true Christian? Well, technically, if you're in the Apostle Paul's writings in the epistles, yes. But this is an analogy or an allegory. And in Jesus' parables and analogies, you can't make every detail fit something just, you know, tit for tat as far as lining it up with Paul's writings. And so I think it's the overall point that matters here. Back in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is preaching to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees thought, we're children of Abraham. Because we're Jews, we're good to go. We'll get into the kingdom. And John warns them there and says, if your life doesn't bear fruit, then the fruit of repentance, then you're not going to get in God's kingdom. And in Matthew 3.10, he tells them, therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, I believe that that is a background for this verse. And then also, you'll remember Romans 11, where Paul compares Israel to an olive tree. And he says there that some of the branches were broken off because of unbelief, and the Gentiles get grafted in. Well, again, the Jewish branches thought, we have a sure place in God's kingdom because we're Jews. And Paul is saying, no, if you reject Jesus, your Messiah, you're broken off. You're cut off from Israel, and your Jewish religion is no good. And so it's only those who truly believe in Christ who are saved. And since in the analogy, Jesus is the true vine, he's the true Israel, The branches that are broken off represent religious people who have no... They make a profession, but they have no fruit. And in that day, of course, it referred especially to the Jews. But now I fear it could refer to many who think, Hey, I'm a Christian. I prayed the prayer. I go to church. I drop my money in the plate once in a while. I'm good to go, man. And there's no fruit. There's no fruit. There's no change of heart. There's no change of character. There's no change of conduct. No change of values. They're living for themselves. Like I said, they're just like their neighbor, trying to get all the junk they can collect before they die. And they have no concern for the lost. They have no concern for the fruit of the Spirit being shown in their lives. That's a dangerous place to be. And so, James, as you'll know, as you know, says, you got got faith, show me your works. True faith results in works. And that's not work salvation. It's saying that saving faith is working faith. It results in that, just like life results in certain things, faith that saves results in a change of character, a change of conduct, and a heart for the lost. Now, what about the branches then that bear fruit? Well, there's the branches that bear fruit, Jesus says, are pruned so that they will bear more fruit. And you'll notice the progression here. In verse 2, the Father prunes the branches that bear fruit, and he does it so that they will bear more fruit in verse 2. And then you get down to verse 5, and the branches that abide in Christ bear much fruit. And that, of course, looks at the process. A branch doesn't go from... No fruit to some fruit to much fruit uh, in in just overnight it takes time, and so again the issue is not to despair if you're not bearing much fruit. It's to say, are you moving in that direction? Is that the progress of your life? Now, to move in that direction, there are two things that happen here. Jesus cleans you with his word, and the vine dresser, who is the father, prunes. Your life, verse 3 again, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Now, if we had the Greek text, uh, the word clean is a noun in Greek, and it's related to the verb prunes in verse 2. So, if you want to read it literally, every branch that bears fruit, he cleanses it so that it may bear some more fruit, and you're already cleansed because of the word which I spoke to you. And again, as I understand it, what Jesus is saying is, goes back here to John 13. Remember there, he said, you're already clean all over, meaning salvation. God has forgiven you of all of your sins because you trusted in me, but you still need to have your feet washed. And here it's a similar kind of thing. The Father, I mean, Jesus already cleaned them through his word. They, they had gotten saved by believing in Christ. But now, in order to walk with God and bear fruit, God's got to prune the sin and the things that don't bear fruit out of their lives. And it refers to the repeated foot washing. Or to use another analogy, out of Hebrews 12, Jesus, or I mean, the, the author there says that if, if you're not being disciplined, you're not a true child of God and he said God disciplines us so that we will share his holiness and he mentions in Hebrews 12:11 that that all true children of God are going to go through discipline so that they might grow the peaceful fruit of righteousness he uses that word fruit and that's the result of God's discipline now I'll admit I'm not much of a gardener and uh apparently neither is Bruce Wilkinson, who wrote a little book called The Secrets of the Vine. But he tells about moving out to the country one spring. And uh, he said that the fence that they shared with their neighbor next door had a a grapevine on it. And uh, it was a large vine. And it went the whole length of the fence. And he and his family were licking their chops, thinking about all the luscious grapes that they were going to eat that next fall. And then few weeks after he moved in, he looked out of his garage while he was out there working, and he noticed the neighbor had a large pair of shears, and he was out there just hacking that vine, seemingly to Bruce, to death. I mean, Bruce was really alarmed at this guy just whacking that vine down. And so he went over to his neighbor, and trying to be kind of diplomatic, he said, um, you don't like grapes, I guess. Love grapes, the neighbor said. And uh Bruce tried to express his hopes that maybe they could have some grapes off this vine that fall. And it was very obvious to the neighbor that he was confused and he was disappointed over what the neighbor was doing. And the neighbor finally said, uh, you're, you're, you're not a country boy, are you? He said, uh, you don't really understand about grapes. And then his neighbor said, well, son, he said, we can either grow ourselves a lot of beautiful leaves that fill up this whole fence Or he said, we can have the biggest, juiciest, sweetest grapes that you have ever eaten. But he said, we can't have both. In other words, if we're going to bear grapes, we got to prune this thing. And that's Jesus' point here in the analogy. You can't bear fruit for the Lord unless the heavenly gardener prunes your life. Because the fact is, when we get saved, while at that instant we become new creatures in Christ... We are seated with him in the heavenlies, all of those wonderful positional truths. The reality also is we bring a lot of baggage into the Christian life. The, the world and how it's influenced us, the flesh, that doesn't all just go away. And if the gardener whacked it all off at once, we'd all bleed to death because we all have a lot of that baggage that we bring into the Christian life. And so as the wise master gardener, the father begins the pruning He cuts this out of your life. Ah, that's got to go. That's a wrong attitude. That's an action that isn't honoring to me. And it's painful. It's painful at the moment. But if you want to be like Jesus, you just got things in your life, and I do too, things that have to go. You know? That short temper. Steve, you got to deal with that. You know, that lustful glance. uh Uh-uh. not not good fruit. You know, that greed. No, that's got to go. And and gradually, the gardener begins pruning. And you got to submit to the pruning process and trust the father knows what he's doing. And in any trial, it's good to ask, Lord, what is it that you're trying to teach me here? You know, there, there's some lesson I'm supposed to learn in this trial. And how, how can I learn that lesson? Now, there's one other key here. And I wrap it up with this. A key theme in this text is our responsibility. And that is, as branches in the true bo- vine, we have to abide in Christ. And that word ab- abide, sometimes it's translated Remain. It's used 11 times in John 15. John uses it 40 times in his gospel, and he uses it 27 times in his epistle. So it's an important word to John. And Jesus says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. And the sense is probably, as Leon Morris puts it, Abide in me, and see that I abide in you. In other words, you are to live in such a manner That you're at home in Jesus, and Jesus is at home in your life as well. He's not just an occasional guest that comes in for the weekend, and when he's gone, you can go, whew, I'm glad that guy's gone. You know, now I can get back to life like I enjoy it. No, he moves in. And he not only moves in, he takes over. And he's the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of your house. We saw it back in Chapter 14, verse 23, where Jesus said that uh, both he and the Father, if we keep his word, both he and the Father will love us and they'll come and make their home with us. They'll move in. And so that's the idea here in abiding. Now, inherent in this concept, of course, is that you and I are in a long-term, close, personal relationship with Jesus. You know, that happens when somebody moves in your home. You can't hide stuff from them very long. They figure out who you are, how you live, you know, what, what you're like. And so Jesus here is looking at the overall direction of our lives. It means if you know Jesus as Savior and Lord, he's not just a guest. He moves in and he takes over. And so life begins to change. It means that I don't do anything in my life that would make Jesus uncomfortable. Stuff you watch on TV or the movies you go to. It means if I got garbage in my house, I let Jesus clean that out. Because garbage kind of stinks. You know, and I got dirty closets. Well, he's going to come and straighten those out. And the longer he lives with us, that means the closer we grow to know and love him. And we saw back in verse 21 of chapter 14 that Jesus said he would disclose himself to the one who obeys him. And that means we get to know him more and more and more. Also inherent in this concept of abiding is the idea of depending on Christ for everything. And he says that in verse 5 when he says, For apart from me you can do nothing. He means apart from me you cannot accomplish anything Of eternal significance. You can't produce any fruit that will remain unto eternity without trusting in me. Now, I want to correct something though. A lot of people teach that abiding is effortless. And maybe you've heard teachers use this and say, oh, the the branch doesn't struggle to be in the vine, it just lets the life of the vine flow through it passively, effortlessly, and bingo, you got grapes. Well, I'm sorry, but that's misrepresenting the whole teaching of the Bible. Um, The Bible talks about the need to strive against sin. And that implies some effort. And I've heard these teachers say, if you're striving, you're not abiding. Baloney. Baloney. The the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And as you know, uh, the Apostle Paul He said in Colossians 129 that he labored and strived for Christ. Now he adds quickly, he says, I I do so according to his power, which mightily works within me. So there's a both and. I strive, but Christ strives in me. I work out my salvation, but it's God who works in me. Uh, Both are true, and there's no contradiction there. But, you know, the Apostle Paul pictured the Christian life as a battle put on the full armor of God. Uh, he pictured it as a fight at the end of his life. He said, I've I fought the good fight. He pictured it as an athletic contest. I run, but not in such a way that I won't win. I beat my body and, you know, that in 1 Corinthians 9. All of that implies effort. And so the passive, oh, let go and let God, is just out of balance. Yes, we are to trust God, but then we're to work. And we are to work and we are to trust. And uh, both are true. Here's how the New Schofield Bible explains what it means to abide. And I thought this was helpful. It says, To abide in Christ is, on the one hand, to have no known sin, unjudged and unconfessed, no interest into which he is not brought, no life into which he cannot share. On the other hand, the abiding one takes all burdens to him, and draws all wisdom, life, and strength from Him. It is not unceasing consciousness of these things and of Him, but that nothing is allowed in the life which separates from Him. That's helpful. You don't allow anything in your life that's going to separate you from that fellowship with Christ. And so our Lord's words here should ask all of us lead all of us to ask ourselves these questions. Am I bearing fruit for God's kingdom? And secondly, am I joyfully submitting, and I put that word joyfully in there deliberately, joyfully submitting to God's pruning in my life? And then thirdly, am I daily abiding in Christ? Am I making Christ at home in my heart? And that's the purpose for which he saved you. Don't be satisfied with anything less than that. Father, I thank you that we have these words of the Lord Jesus straight from him to us through the apostolic witness of John. Thank you that the Holy Spirit brought these words to John's mind later and that he wrote them down under the inspiration of the Spirit for our instruction and edification. I would ask if there's anyone here who is a dead branch, who's not bearing fruit, that you would show them that they need to repent and trust in Jesus, that He will give them life, that He will raise them from the dead, And that their purpose in life, henceforth, would be to bring fruit that would glorify you in their lives. And I pray, Lord, that all of us would move from bearing fruit to bearing more fruit and then to bearing much fruit as we grow in Christ. And that if there are things that are hindering that, that we would clean those out of our lives And that we would want you to be our permanent resident and Lord in our homes, in our hearts. And oh Lord, because you've given your life on the cross for us. We give you thanks for your salvation, for your patience and grace with us as we stumble along. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able someday to present to you much fruit to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.